We have a special uh, this morning because Tom Tanucci is back from Kuwait, and I wanted Tom to give us all a report on what his time over there the last nine months comprised of, what it was like, what he saw, his perspective on it. Are we getting a whistle? We're getting, I need to lower this? Okay. I'll hold it down here. Um, so, Tom, come on up. I'm going to turn it over to Tom, give us a report, and then we'll get into the word. There you go. Just put that. Good morning. Uh, man, it's glad, uh, really, really glad to be back. Uh, just coming back to this church last week, uh, two weeks ago, and now this week, it, uh, so much more of a sanctuary than it was before. Uh, appreciate it a lot more. Appreciate the, uh, fellowship, the doctrine that is taught here at this church more than I ever did in my life. First of all, I'd like to thank everybody for your prayers, for myself, our unit, uh, my family. Thank you for the prayers for my wife and my, my two children. Thank you for the application of that, uh, always being available for Sean and uh, Logan and Nolan, the teachers uh, steadfastly teaching my children, and Pastor Dean up here every week uh, giving that doctrine to my wife and to this congregation. Uh, without it, I don't know what my family would have done. I don't know what I would have done without that, uh, that solid foundation, that, that doctrinal foundation that I received really primarily from this church. Um, I'll give you, uh, oh, also, thank you for the care packages, uh, folks that sent over uh, goodies, food, uh, the emails, funny emails, the good emails, the, uh, the letters. I sent back home my box of letters that I received. I kept every one of them. And the box uh, cost me over $10 to send back, and that was, it was huge. And uh, those letters every night, reading those letters, were uh, just fantastic, uh, knowing that everybody back home was still doing good and gave me that comfort to know that uh, everybody back here uh, was still serving. I'll give you a quick uh, sit rep. Uh, we got into Kuwait January 12th. Uh, we had an advanced team that went over there, myself and 25 other folks, uh, to set up our operation. So we got into Kuwait January 12th. Within four days, uh, Chief Warrant Officer Pearson of the 101st Airborne was inside our tent briefing us on uh, how they were going to deploy their aircraft and how they were going to use the 1109th AVCRAD and that support of that, the maintenance of the, uh, the Blackhawks, Apache, Chinooks, and OH-58 Deltas. Uh, not too long after that, the 3rd ID, uh, we coordinated with them. We coordinated with the 82nd Airborne, the, uh, the CAV, and also the 11th Regiment. All were the offensive for the, uh, for the initial offensive in the war. The threat con at the time was Delta, which is the highest threat con. Um, convoys, of course, were getting, were getting sniped at. The, uh, when, before we got there in December, 270 soldiers had contracted food poisoning at the Chow Hall. They found out later when we got there that they were, they were deliberately poisoned. Um, the, the food had to be escorted in with MPs and uh, the water and everything else. So they were trying to break us before we even started. Uh, 
God's providence in many instances. I know your prayers. Uh, so many times it seemed like they would find a cache of weapons on, a, on our convoy routes because of interrogation of uh, people who are sympathetic to the Iraqi government and to al-Qaeda and the different uh, terrorist organizations. Uh, numerous times they found caches of weapons up along the route going up towards Udari, which is the, the northernmost uh, post in Kuwait. It's about 12 kilometers away from the border of Iraq. And we traveled up there all the time to coordinate with the folks who were going to go ahead and, and push on to the offensive. Our unit was spread all over the place. We were in Arifjan, which is in the southern part of Kuwait. We were in Doha, which is about an hour north. We were in uh, Udari, which is like, like I said, uh, 12, uh, 12 kilometers uh, south of Iraq. We were in Afghanistan, helping the 82nd Airborne over in Afghanistan. Our unit is a depot level unit, so as soon as the theater found out our capabilities, basically from Afghanistan all the way through Kuwait and Iraq, they wanted our help because of some of the special capabilities that our unit brings. So our, our soldiers were spread throughout that whole theater. Uh, we sent 23, which was a very hard decision, 23 soldiers to aid in the offensive in March. Uh, the first night of the air battle, uh, 40, 42 Apaches were launched with, that our group was taking care of. 38 of those 42 were shot up that night. Um, they got 18 of those aircraft back up immediately the next morning and patched those things together and, and moved on with the offensive. And each hour after that, they were getting aircraft up. They did a fantastic job getting those, getting those Apaches up in the air because that was basically our, our main uh, ground support. And uh, the Iraqis used different tactics this time that, uh, that surprised us, but uh, the Lord did the Lord did provide. Uh, we sent groups up into every time an Apache crashed or a Black Hawk crashed, we had to go up and get it and uh, bring it back down and try to fix the aircraft. Uh, that, were, that were very interesting uh, convoys. Uh, now, the point that I'd like to make with this church, uh, the doctrine. Uh, Pastor talked two weeks ago about the, the early church not having the vocabulary, the uh, trinity and, and hypostatic union and these words that, that we take for granted today. And over there, trying to talk and trying to, trying to operate every day objectively, uh, the faith rest drill, authority orientation, relaxed mental attitude, personal sense of my eternal destiny. These things were so important to know that I was there for a reason and to be away from my family and, uh, excuse me, to be away from my family, and, uh, but knowing that that's where I belong. And there were so many instances that the Lord showed that I, that's where I was supposed to be. And uh, that just comforted me so much to know that I was in the right place at the right time in the Lord's, in, in, our, in our history. And there were so many instances that, that came up. I, I had them all in my head before I came up here. <laughs> that I'll just kind of... Uh, but the doctrine, not only that through Pastor Dean and Pastor Ron McMurray, that the, the Lord has used these two faithful men in my life, um, but also the doctrine that uh, my wife had and my kids had. 
I watch so many families break apart over there, husbands and wives, and, and guys actually had to go home because the mental instability of their family back home. And that was, I don't mean this in a bad way, that was the furthest thing from my mind. I knew my wife, my kids were grounded. I knew that they had great people around them to help in this, in this church body and also my family and her family. Uh, so it wasn't, I could always focus on the mission. I could every single day focus on the mission. And on guard duty, I would watch guys. I was just telling uh, uh, Bryce, uh, we had guard duty every 10 days. And I was, E7s were always sergeant of the guard. And I'd, one night I was there and I was looking at this guy and he was just somewhere else. And uh, so I finally got to ask, I didn't ask him directly. I asked a friend of his what's going on. And it was a family matter. And he was not at all locked on to the mission. And he ended up going home due to some things that were going on back home. So the doctrine in the family is just as important, if not more important. I think I'd rather be where I was than to be where Sean was. I, I, really, I really feel that way now because now I think about the guys that we left behind over there. I think about them more now with concern and prayer than I did about myself. So I, I think that they had it a lot rougher, but with the doctrine that that Sean has stored in her soul due to the fact of, of, of this church right here and my children and you teachers down there teaching those kids, it was, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a reassuring relief to be over there in that situation that, uh, to know that your family is well-grounded. Uh, the second thing is the, uh, the tapes and the CDs. Uh, Bryce, John, Jim... I think uh, Christine was another one that, uh, and whoever else, uh, Nick, Al, wh whoever else does those, those tapes and OCDs, that is an incredible, incredible ministry. Uh, Lori, and, Lori and Jeff, I'm sorry if I missed anybody. Um, that is an incredible ministry. Uh, I would sit in my cot at night after whatever time we went to, to get rack time, and I'd put them... I'd put that tape on, and immediately I was in the third row, fourth row at Preston City Bible Church, which was a comfort right there. I heard Pastor Dean's voice. I heard you guys laughing every time. Well, not every time, but most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, hearing, uh, hearing his voice and uh, getting back, I would, just during the period of a day, I just couldn't believe sometimes how much I slipped. Uh, the human viewpoint, the op-tempo of the day, the, uh, the stress, uh, the dirt and the filth and the being hungry and thirsty and everything else. You get back in that bunk and you put that on and you're in Preston City. And uh, when we went over to Afghanistan, I thought about Pastor Dean uh, being over there in Kazakhstan and, and Pam and I thought about the tapes that I had with me in Afghanistan and the tapes that I had with me over in Kuwait. I know I had the most comprehensive Christian library in those countries, probably on that continent. <laughs> I, I pro on, that, on that continent. I pro and it was such reassuring to, to, to have those tapes, that standard always there. Now, on the other side of it, the, those tapes, they get into the hands of those people over there. And I know they get passed around. That's just how things happen. 
that is such a lighthouse over in those countries. I mean, there is zero, zero doctrine. The only thing you see is the, the crescent moon. That's part of the landscape over there, the mosques and everything else. And that Christian doctrine, that, that, how, how deep and rich it is in this church, is, is a precious, precious commodity over there. And I know that the folks that are getting those tapes are enjoying them, but I hope they distribute them. I left all mine in Kuwait. I left it probably about 100, 100 tapes behind. I owe you some money, John. <laughs> I left a bunch behind so the servicemen could have them. Uh, another Avcrat is, gonna, is going, to, going to relieve us. And I figured I'd leave them behind for those folks because there is absolutely no doctrine even on the post. Most of your, most of your uh, services are song and plays and things like that where they just scratch the surface of, of who God is. Um, so these, these tapes over there, they're in the best place they could be, is, is over there. And uh, you guys are doing that tape ministry. It, I, you, you might not ever see the fruit in your lifetime, but I know that that, that, uh, that tape ministry is an incredible, incredible tool in those countries. Um, the last thing I'd like to say is uh, I found out real quick through all the experiences that the opposite of fear truly is love. And uh, prayer wasn't to have courage. Prayer was always petitioning God for his love. And, uh, and knowing that because of my personal sense of my eternal destiny, that's where I belonged, I felt confident that that's where the Lord wanted me. And I prayed in a lot of different places in my life, but never prayed in a bunker, never prayed in a gas mask, never prayed in... And in those situations, God's love was the first thing that always came to mind. And love that he had given to me, to my family, the blessings that he bestowed upon our country. Because the men, that, men and women that we met over there were, were truly incredible. The 101st Airborne, the, the first gentleman I talked about, should have retired two years ago. But he was the front man for the 101st Airborne. He was my age. He looked about 10 years older. Uh, he'd been in every conflict that the 101st had, had been in. Another gentleman I ran into, a major, who had spent 38 months in the 101st Airborne. He'd been home a total of six months with his family out of that 38 months. And the longest time he spent was only two months at a, at a clip. He was two years older than me. He looked about 10, 15 years older than he was. These gentlemen, these, these, these people who believe in selfless service, who are patriots, they... They are heroes. These, these folks are heroes. And uh, you can also be rest assured that the youth of our country, the 18, 19, 20-year-old kids in the, in the 82nd, the 3rd ID, the 101st, all are, have integrity, they have honor, they have respect. And it was such a good thing to see because in my unit, it's an older unit, and you don't see a lot of the youth. And some of the youth that comes to us isn't like these guys. They've, these guys are in these, these high-speed organizations and they teach them the discipline and the, the integrity right away. But uh, I renovated a lot of my thinking 
a lot of my thinking was renovated. Uh, a lot of things that I called hang-ups, my own sin nature, that I found out my fear and my arrogance and some of the things that, that I had going on in my life, the Lord, the Lord exposed it. And that's basically the best way I could put it. You were very exposed technically, tactically, and your character. Your character was totally exposed because of the, the environment we were in. But coming back here and, and coming back to this, this great nation, this is a great nation, um, has, I have a whole new appreciation, which I think everybody would understand. I have a whole new appreciation of this nation. I have a whole new appreciation for, for God's love and for this church. Um, this church is it's, it's one of a kind. Um, I appreciate everything that you have done for me and my family. Uh, I thank you so much for, for being stalwart and, uh, and persevering. And one last thing, a P.S. If you ever see in a restaurant or wherever you hang out, any of the guys who are in the Patriot battalions, the Patriot divisions, buy them a, buy them a Coke, a beer, uh, uh, whatever, they, whatever they're drinking. These guys did a fantastic job. The war would have been totally different if it wasn't for the accuracy of the Patriot missile batteries over there. Uh, over 32 attacks, they knocked down every one. And the ones that they didn't knock down, they basically let get through due to the fact that the coordinates were not going to be in anything uh, that was going to be of any population. So if you see those folks, uh, please, you know, shake their hands and and tell them thank you because it would have been a lot more American lives and coalition lives lost if it wasn't for those Patriot folks. That's all I have to say there, Pastor. Well, Tom, thanks a lot for that, for that report. And I guess, you know, even as a pastor, you know, this is like very similar to, I'm sure, your job. You go in day in, day out, and sometimes you just don't really realize the overall dimension of it. And it's always um, a bit humbling for me when I hear testimony like, like uh, Tom's and from others and the impact that what's being taught here has on the lives of people because we just tend to lose sight of that. Sometimes we just take for granted uh, what we do and what we have. But it's good to have Tom back, and it's a great encouragement to all of us not to take lightly what we have from the Lord here. Before we get into God's Word this morning, let's uh, take a few moments to pray, a little silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful for all that we do have, for Your Word, for all that You have told us about Yourself, about Your love for us, about Your power, Your sufficiency, Your grace, all that You have done for us because of what Christ did on the cross. 
Father, we do thank you for the country we live in, for our freedoms. We continue to pray for our men who are serving, men and women serving in Iraq, serving in Afghanistan, serving in other parts of the world. We pray that you would watch over them. We pray that you would use not only the tapes from this church, but from many other doctrinal churches that are being sent over to that these these various theaters of operation, we pray that you would use those to get the truth, stability to our soldiers. Father, we thank you for the safe return of Tom, for just the impact he's had on those around him, and we pray that you would just continue to use that that witness in, of his life. Now, Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that we might be refreshed and encouraged and challenged by the teaching of your word, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Third John. Third John, and we are looking at this section. It's actually one sentence in the Greek, so we are <coughs> analyzing it in terms of the sentence as a whole. We find in verses 5, 6, and 7. Beloved, you do faithfully, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and, corrected translation, even for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church, whom you send forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you are doing well, because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles." Now, last time we got into these verses, and we saw that uh, John is praising Gaius, who is not a pastor. Gaius is just a regular believer in the congregation. And he is praising Gaius because of the impact that he is having on those around him and his application of love in relationship to these who are traveling through. He has two classifications, brethren and for strangers. I do not believe the term strangers here is referring to unbelievers. He is talking about those who are known and those who are unknown. Uh, And the reference is primarily to traveling evangelists, what we would classify as missionaries. And Gaius is demonstrating his grace orientation and his impersonal love through his support for these traveling missionaries. And the application, of course, for us is that as we grow and advance and come to understand grace, one area in which it should impact us is in the arena of our own hospitality and especially to those who have dedicated their life to the communication of God's Word. Uh, This would include pastors as well as evangelists, and missionaries, and it is one of the sad realities in our world that the people who seem to get the least are those who are sacrificing the most to serve the Lord, especially in places overseas where they give up uh, so much to serve the Lord, to go live outside their country, outside their comfort zone, away from their family and their friends and all of the things that we all enjoy that we don't even think about all the luxuries that we have 
and sometimes it's it's little things, sometimes it's big things, and just a few times that I've had the opportunity to go overseas, I, I realize what a tremendous uh, sacrifice this is and a challenge it is because you know I'm over there for two or three weeks and I always can come home and get a good hamburger on the way home, but. Um, that's not necessarily true there. Of course, you do get to go to McDonald's, and I won't eat at a McDonald's anywhere except in you know, Kiev or Moscow, and there it tastes great. <laughs> of course, in Kiev, there is an American-owned restaurant named the Arizona Grill, and they really have good hamburgers imported from the U.S., black, black Angus meat, and that's, that's excellent. So I always make sure when I'm over there that, that I take Jim there so that he can have a have a good hamburger, but you give up the little things and you don't realize it, and it's the little things that are the things that annoy you. I know that in just the last week or two, uh, Jim Myers and I have, and some others where you, you get online with each other and talk back and forth using a little computer thing called Windows Messenger, and it's difficult sometimes when you're talking to Jim because the telephone lines over there are so bad that he's in the middle of a sentence and he just gets kicked off offline. So you're trying to have a conversation, and you're, you're typing back and forth to each other, and uh, every five minutes or so he gets kicked offline, has to get back online again. Those kinds of things are just very, very aggravating. But what is so positive for those who are serving, whether we're talking about the Kibbies in Thailand, whether we're talking about George Mueller, and I understand George and Erica just left last week to go down to Cameroon for three months, and George Mueller is 74. So he's going to be down there. We've got uh, on our prayer list, we have Moses Anwabiko. And though Moses is originally from Africa, he's lived in the U.S. for many, many years, and he goes back over there as an evangelist. Uh, We have the LaRosas that we support in the Philippines. And these are missionaries that need that lifeline. Just as uh, Tom was talking earlier, just in his stint over in Kuwait, how important it is to get those, those letters, cookies, goodies, whatever it is, emails, that support, and to know that the people back home are praying for you. And this is the kind of support that Gaius gave, a support that goes above and beyond what you would normally think of because you're honoring the missionary and his commitment to the Lord and his commitment to serve the Lord in a cross-cultural situation, and in many of these cases, that has taken him them outside of the U.S. So we need to honor them, and that's the last clause there in verse um, verse six, that they sent them on in a manner worthy of God. Now it's not the old style uh, support for the missionary that you take all your second-hand, third-hand cast-off clothes, and, well, we can't wear it anymore, so we'll throw it in the missionary barrel. And then once a year, you send the box of missionary clothes over to the missionary, and he gets everybody's second and third hand-me-downs. You know, they ought to get the first run. They ought to get the best, and we need to honor them. So Gaius is being praised because of his generous support and hospitality toward the traveling evangelists and missionaries. We look at this verse. We see that he sends them forward. It's actually a relative clause here. It's a, not a second sentence. It's the same sentence. And the verb send them is not the word apostello, which is the verb related to the noun apostolos, where we get our word apostle. 
It is a different word. It's a uh, adverbial participle of means that you have borne witness of your love before them. And actually the way the sentence reads in the Greek, you do well by sending them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. The main clause and the main verb in this second part of the clause is you do, you will do well. So the, the idea here is you will do well by sending them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So sending them out is a key verb for understanding the role of missionaries. Now, verse 7, John goes on to say, because they went forth for his name's sake. See, they're going forth because of who Jesus Christ is. That idea in Scripture, as we've studied again and again, when it mentions his name, brings into focus a person's character, who they are. They go forth because of who he is. And the verb here for go forth is the verb ex erkomai, which means to go forth, to go out from, or to go out of. And so they are sending these people forward, and that brings up the entire concept of missions. And one of the things that I want to spend some time on in the next couple of weeks is developing a biblical understanding of missions with a view towards developing a biblically grounded philosophy of missions and mission support for a local church. Now, some of you may not realize this, but we support, financially support, five or six different missions. I forget what the number is right now. We just added uh, Chafer Seminary to our list of those we support. But the support that we give from Preston City Bible Church does not come out of our main budget. We don't have a line item budget in the budget of Preston City Bible Church for missionaries. If you want to support the missionaries that we support, then you just... Get, indicate through a separate donation that that part of your donation goes to missions. And then each quarter we take the money that's been designated for missions and we just divide it up equally between the missionaries that we support. And so it is up to the congregation and the congregation's own volition to support missionaries. It's not something that is just figured ahead of time by the by the deacon board and then legislated out of the general budget it is a direct uh, a direct result of individuals concern for missions but we want to develop an understanding here of what missions is all about so i want to look at uh, three things we won't cover all of it this morning the first is to start with a biblical foundation for missions the second is to look at the biblical function of missions, and then third, the support for missions. So we're going to start by looking at the definition. What is the biblical foundation for missions? Before we get any further, we need to define what missions is. There's a lot of confusion about what missions is, and there are some technical aspects of the definition that those who write on this subject, who are called missiologists, that's those who study missions, that they, they go back and forth over and argue over. And I've been reading various books on missions lately. And this seems to be the core of the basic idea that we want to get across on missions. I'm going to pull out about five ideas here, five elements. First of all, it's the idea of sending authorized and trained people 
It's sending authorized and trained people. They are people who are designated by a local church, recognized by a local church, to go on a specific, uh, carry out a specific task related to evangelism and biblical training. But the people are, are identified, recognized by a local church. They should not be people who just sort of jump up and do it on their own. And the biblical model is that we see them set, a, set apart by a local church and sent forth. Now, they may not be supported by just that local church. They may be supported by many different uh, local, local churches, but they have that local church grounding. And second, that they are trained. That training does not have to be formal seminary training, but there needs to be some sort of training. There's informal seminary training. There is uh, Bible Institute training, Bible college training. But people need to be trained and taught in skills related to teaching the gospel, skills related to working with people in cross-cultural circumstances. Uh, that's, that's a real challenge to go into another culture. And in the time that I have spent... Uh, since I first went to the former Soviet bloc in 1994, realizing what a challenge it is to communicate the gospel to people who speak a different language and come out of a different culture. Because especially in Russia, for example, they've got a Bible, but it's a very old translation, and it's even more antiquated than the uh, King James Bible that many people use in English. You know, most people sit down, they read a King James Bible, and they can't understand it. Well, it's for two reasons. Number one, it's written at about a 12th grade reading level, and most people can't read beyond a 4th grade reading level. And second, the vocabulary is antiquated. And not only is the vocabulary antiquated in the Russian Bible, but the translation is bad. So you have a lot of errors in the translation. For example, the word righteousness, dikaiosune in the Greek, the word righteousness is translated with the Greek word pravda, which means truth. Well, that immediately changes the meaning of those sentences completely, and it's a distorted theology. So you have to have people who are trained, and I know that Jim spent hours with his translator, Margaret, going over vocabulary. Okay, if, I, if I'm going to use this word, if I'm going to talk about imputation, what is the what is the corresponding Russian word for that? And what are the nuances to that? What are the different ideas? When somebody hears that word, what's the, what are the other images that come to mind when they hear that word? I mean, things that we don't, we don't normally think of, and it took uh, a couple of years to really work through many things. I, we saw a problem with this when uh, we went to Kazakhstan three years ago. We had a translator who normally translated for what I would call the general run-of-the-mill, non-teaching, non-informing uh, missionary. And so he knew how to translate all the little uh, pablum Christian phrases. But when we started talking about sanctification and confession, we started talking about positional truth, he had no Russian vocabulary to be able to translate what we were teaching. So this is a major element. You have, to, you have to train people. You have to have folks who can think, who can understand, who are willing to be flexible, who understand that they have to take the truth that they know in one language. And, and many of the illustrations that we use are so culturally bound. For example, sometimes when we talk about the, the three areas of sin in a, in a believer or in, in a, in a, when someone is born, that they have 
uh, an inherited sin nature. They have the imputed sin of Adam's original sin, and they have personal sins. We say, well, that's three strikes and you're out. Well, we've talked about that in a, in a, a baseball metaphor. We talk about rebound, uh, sometimes for confession, and that's a term that buys into a basketball metaphor. And you're, you're out on the steps of Russia somewhere, and you, you try to talk with using these kinds of images, it's not going to do anything for those people because they don't, they don't understand the illustration at all. They're, you, you've got to stop and explain the whole game of baseball to them. So you have to have people who, who can break down, understand, think about communication itself. So we have to challenge people when they're young. You know, when you're 35 or 40, it's late. You need to, when you're young, you need to decide that God has gifted me with a communication gift. And perhaps I need to spend some time when I graduate from high school and college to go to a Bible college, go to a Bible institute somewhere where I can get some training. And that doesn't mean that you're always going to agree with something there. I think there's a couple of places that I would recommend to go. And I also recommend with young people that you get a good secondary skill or training. But it's good for a lot of young folks to, to take at least a year to Bible college anyway just to be really grounded in some basics of, of, of biblical truth. That's another story. So the first part of our definition of missions is sending authorized and trained people. The second part is to cross language and or cultural divisions. To cross language and or cultural divisions. The main idea in missions, per se, is cross-cultural. It may not necessarily involve a cross-language situation. When the Apostle Paul went to Cyprus, when he went to, to Asia, when he went to Greece, he was still speaking Koine Greek. As a native of Tarsus, he grew up speaking uh, Koine Greek. He also knew Aramaic and Hebrew. But he was not crossing language barriers, but he was crossing some uh, cultural barriers. We know in this country there are all kinds of missions or evangelistic operations that target certain subcultures. You have Jewish missions, missions to the American Indian. I know when I grew up, I still remember hearing the mission stories of, uh, of uh, uh, Johnny Whitfield, who was out with the, uh, who was the Navajo Indians in Arizona. And hearing others who worked with uh, Native, uh, or what is now known as Native Americans, I wonder if they still have missionaries that go to American Indians uh, with all the political correctness today. You also have missions that operates within the framework of certain charities and hospitals, or what we call soup kitchens. Uh, very famous mission of this type was the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. In Houston, there's one called the Star of Hope, and I remember 20 years ago taking a youth group there and those guys came home and they never looked at being homeless the same. They saw a whole new area of life. They were relatively upper middle class kids and they got a whole new appreciation of how the gospel can change people's lives. So you have different types of evangelistic organizations that target target segments of a society. You also have uh, evangelistic groups that target teenagers. And if you're over 30, you understand that teenagers are a different culture. 
and they need a, someone who can go in and address them within that framework. Organizations like Young Life, Campus Life, Campus Crusade. Then you have military evangelistic organization like Christian Servicemen's Bureau. All of this is involved in some type of missions, even though it's not going to another country. It is crossing cultural boundaries in our own country. And then another category that usually fits under missions is the support of seminaries and Bible colleges for the training of people who can operate in these areas. Now, in, it's sort of been a, a standard way of approaching missions in many churches is to classify missions in terms of foreign missions and home missions. And home missions would include a lot of the kinds of cross-cultural evangelistic uh, operations that I've explained already, but it could also include uh, Christian camping and other things of that nature. So I think that we can cover all of this by saying it's crossing language and or cultural divisions. The first point that had to do with training people, that picks up the importance of seminaries and Bible colleges and Bible institutes. Their purpose is to communicate the gospel and, that should read, and to teach, to teach the Word of God and the whole realm of Bible doctrine. To communicate the gospel and to teach the Word of God and the whole realm of Bible doctrine beyond the cultural border of the local home church. That is, going out beyond us. What, what Dave does when he goes down to the prison ministry and teaches down there, that's part of missions. So the purpose of all of this is not to go over and change a person's culture. That will happen because every culture is a based on a religious orientation, whether it's an African culture, an Indian culture, Asian culture, or a Brooklyn culture, or a Houston culture, or a Boston culture. Those cultures are influenced by a, a, a plethora of different religious ideas at the core of every culture are religious ideas. And so when the Word of God comes into a culture that has had no impact whatsoever from biblical teaching, it's going to change the culture. But the idea is not to try to make it American culture or a Texas culture. or Somebody can laugh there, you know, you just... <laughs> Just see if anybody's awake, or to to you're not out there trying to to export your home culture or British culture. That was a mistake that was made by many missionaries. That's not the goal. But if you're teaching the Word of God accurately and honestly, and you're teaching establishment principles, it's going to change the culture. And you can go to India and you can teach the Word of God, and it will change the way they do things and should change the way they do things. You don't want to try to change it so they do it the way they do it in America because in America you've got a, a whole culture that needs to be transformed by the teaching of God's Word as well. So the purpose is to communicate the gospel and then to teach the whole counsel of God, the Word of God and the whole realm of Bible doctrine and this is beyond the cultural border of the local home church, outside of the, the walls of Preston City Bible Church. So when we come to thinking about all of these different aspects, we can say that the primary task is evangelism. 
then after you have evangelism and they come to know the Lord, you have to train them and to teach them the whole counsel of God. You have to train and teach them Bible doctrine. You have to then go on to train indigenous leaders. And fourth, to establish a self-governing indigenous church. That's the ultimate goal, is that you establish a self-governing indigenous church. That may take a century or two. You may work in one area, one village, and get something accomplished in 15 or 20 years, but then you have to move on to the next village. We still send missionaries to Africa, except the, popu- the, the percentage of, e- you know, statistically, we don't know how many are actually saved, but statistically the percentage of evangelical Christians in Africa is, is enormous. The gospel has penetrated almost every area of Africa. But there's so much more that needs to be done. There's tremendous problems because of the inroads of Islam. There's a lack of, of an indigenous uh, seminary education and training there. Too often what's happened in some areas is all they, they've been exposed to is liberal, uh, um, liberal Protestant theology and not biblical teaching. So there's a tremendous mission field there that still needs to hear the gospel and still needs to be trained. I was just thinking, uh, I've got some pictures here that uh, uh, Jim Dumas gave me when I was down in Houston. Jim Dumas goes over to Kiev and works with Jim Myers. He's he's retired now. He's rather young to be retired, actually. But Jim got a great deal in his retirement package, so that allows him to be a self-supporting uh, missionary, and he goes back and forth to Kiev five or six times a year, bought a small apartment over there, which is where uh, I stay and where others stay when we go there, which cuts down on having to pay hotel bills and things of that nature. But three, he works with the young people, with, has a ministry with teenagers and with the kids, goes around. To, he took the uh, group that went over this summer, took them to uh, the hospitals and to the cancer hospitals and uh, goes to the orphanages and he, he uh, ran the camp that they uh, helped run this summer. Jim oversees all of that kind of kind of thing and he gave me some pictures and I thought they were pictures of uh, Dan's trip and the kids from here when they went over this summer but it turns out it is another trip taken by Oksana and Lena who are two of the, they're in their 20s, two of the young people that Jim has been working with. Oksana is actually Jim's uh, primary secretary running a lot of the administrative stuff there. And these two girls have a heart for Islamic missions. And as Jim has been teaching them, now what they want to do is leave Kiev and go to uh, down to Egypt and take the gospel down there. So they've spent a couple of weeks this summer down uh, in Cairo evangelizing this summer. So this is the fantastic outreach of missions. You can't sometimes just say, okay, we're just going to restrict it to this particular location. For example, Jim is is in Kiev, and that's his primary ministry, but he's had some tremendous openings down in Africa. And so every year he goes down to Africa two or three times. I mean, just exciting to watch how God is using people because we live in such an age today when so few people are teaching the Word that as you know from how God is using my ministry, that that it's just invitations are just coming from everywhere and there's such a desperate need for Bible teaching. And there's positive volition out there. 
but there needs to be people who can who can teach the word and go there and communicate to people. So that is the whole role of missions and supporting missionaries. And as a church, any local church should be very missionary minded. As we look at all of this, we come up with a sort of a technical definition here that I want to incorporate in a position paper for the congregation on what we're doing with missions to understand what it's all about. Missions technically refers to a form of cross-cultural evangelism where designated individuals are set apart by a local church to carry out the work of communicating the gospel, teaching the word of God, and the whole realm of Bible doctrine, with the end result of creating a self-supporting indigenous ministry. See, a missionary is really to work himself out of a job. His goal is to get to a point where he's not needed, where he can build into and teach and communicate to a body of men there that in a generation or so can can lead their own indigenous uh, congregations, seminaries, and, and training institutes. And part of any such endeavor... The definition goes on to read, part of any such endeavor involves the training and preparation of those involved to accurately handle and teach the Word of God. Thus, the support of such training institutions is also a part of missions. And I think that as a local church, there needs to be a rationale for who you support. It's real easy to just give in and say, oh, I know so-and-so, he's a great guy, he's got a great ministry, God's really using him, let's pick up with him and start supporting him. And then a year or so later, somebody else comes along and you say, man, this guy's also got a great ministry, let's support him. Well, we don't have any more money, we've got our missionaries that we support, but have you done an effective job? Do you have a master plan? Do you understand, is there a rationale behind your missions policy? And I would suggest that, thinking about missions, that one of the most important things we have to think about is the future. And that's why I think our priority needs to go to a training program. And we have taken up the support of Chafer Seminary to send them contribution every month because that provides for the future. This congregation is going to age. I hate to surprise some of you. But before long, we're all going to be like old Dave Tongren back there, and we're all going to be 85 years old and telling everybody else what it was like 40 years ago. 87. He's getting older by the minute. So as we, as we advance, and as I advance, one of these days, uh, I'm not going to be able to be in a pulpit another 35 or 40 years, but who's going to replace me? Who's going to teach your children doctrine? Who's going to teach your grandchildren doctrine? Do you care? That's an important principle. Do you care? We ought to care. We need to have a vision for the future. We have doctrinal churches out there today who are crying for a pastor. I know of two or three small groups right now that don't have a pastor, and I know of three or four more that are probably going to be in a position to to hire a full-time pastor in the next two or three years. And I have talked to numerous people around the country in the last couple of years and said, do you know anybody qualified and ready to take that church? And the list is very short. There's nobody on it. Now, we all know Dan. Dan's going to be on that list in about nine months when he finally graduates from seminary, having squeezed four years into eight. But... <clears throat> (laughs) 
But see, you know, he's going to have quite an opportunity out there. And see, this is the thing. There are, there are tremendous challenges. And this is one of the reasons that Schaefer Seminary was founded uh, about ten years ago. And it's growing. It's, it's a tremendous challenge to start a seminary. And the uh, unfortunate reality of uh, many missionary operations as well as seminaries is that they can do great and wonderful things, but it usually relates to dollars. And, of course, we know that we all... I trust in a God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and all he has to do is sell a few cattle, and that will take care of the financial issues. But he does that through individuals and through individual believers and through individual congregations who have a vision for supporting missions and seminaries. And that is one of the things that we need to take to heart. That's part of our responsibility. God doesn't do it apart from us. So missions has to do with with sending out, identifying and designating individuals who are trained and qualified to go out and do the work of cross-cultural evangelism with the ultimate goal of establishing indigenous churches. Now, that's just our definition. So we know what we're talking about. Missions doesn't refer to just the everyday believer who is in some general sense a missionary, but a better term for that would be an ambassador for Christ because every believer has a responsibility of being an evangelist. Every single believer is communicating the gospel and some biblical truth to the culture around him. But there's a difference between that operation of you, the everyday believer, and your operation as an ambassador for Christ, and someone like Jim Myers or Ralph LaRosa or George Mueller or George Meisinger in relationship to Chafer Seminary, someone of that nature who is dedicating his life to that particular, particular task. So when we talk about missions, we now know what we're talking about. Well, what's the biblical foundation? Let's go back and look at what the Scripture says. If we define missions as cross-cultural evangelism, where you are sending the message of the grace of God into a hostile culture, then our first example of that occurs in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall. The earth is now a hostile environment. Adam and Isha, who are created in the image and likeness of God, are now fallen in rebellion against God. And in Genesis 3.15, when God is outlining the consequences of the penalty for sin, he addresses the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. This is the first indication of the gospel, that her seed is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, this is one of the very few places, I meant to do a study on this, one of the very few places where the term seed is related to a woman. See, seed is usually related to the male, not the female. The female has the egg, the male plants the seed. But here it specifically relates to her Seed, this is related to the virgin conception and virgin birth. So this is called by theologians the Proto-Evangelium, this verse, which means the first indication of the gospel. So you see that God is going to, has a plan to penetrate the rebellious human viewpoint pagan culture of man 
from the beginning. The next example we see of God penetrating the world with the truth of the gospel is in, with Noah in Genesis 6, uh, 3 and following. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, and that should be corrected to shall not abide with man forever. That Hebrew word there, strive, is a hapax legomenon, and cognate studies indicate its probable meaning isn't strive like the old King James had, but is abide. My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. So God gave 120 years of grace before judgment. Verse 4, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of men came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who are old men of renown. That's the pagan culture. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So in verse 7, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah, verse 8, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah got involved in a 120-year evangelistic ministry. Now, one of the great lessons to learn from Noah is the lesson of perseverance, because Noah did not have a single convert. And we, we live in, a, in an American success-oriented society where we measure success by numbers, by quantification. And our view in America is that if we're doing it right, it's going to grow. If we're doing what God wants us to do, He's going to bless us, and that's explained in terms of numbers, growth, uh, financial growth. But here's Noah, and Noah is praised by God in Genesis, I mean, in, in Hebrews 11 for his faith, for his faithfulness, for his application of doctrine. For 120 years, he did what God wanted him to do. God is pleased with what Noah did. Noah didn't have a single convert. See, if our theology and understanding of God's plan and purpose isn't big enough to watch a congregation shrink because of negative volition in the surrounding culture, if our positive volition, I mean, if our, our theology isn't, isn't broad enough to uh, accept what appears to be failure but really isn't, you see, God's standard of measurement isn't numbers, it isn't growth, it isn't how many people got saved last week. God's standard is, are you faithful to my word, and are you teaching the truth? That's the standard. And we often forget that. We think, well, you know, I wish we had more people. I wish we had a bigger building. That's especially true of smaller churches and pastors and smaller ministries. But you see, our, our understanding of God and his grace has to be broad enough to make room for the very small, what appears to be inconsequential, a shrinking ministry that may be doing, having a fantastic impact, but it's just not seen. Well, Noah takes the word into this pagan culture prior to the flood, and he is rejected. Then the next major event that comes along, well, let's look at one more verse on Noah in the New Testament, Second Peter 2.5. God did not spare the ancient world, but he saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher, of righteousness. So he proclaimed righteousness and the way to righteousness through faith alone in Christ alone, promised in a coming Savior, and was completely rejected for that 120 year period of time. 
After the flood, man continued to deteriorate. And we have a description of this in Romans 1, 21 through 23. This is a historic description because although they knew God, that is, after they came off the ark, you had eight people coming off the ark. They all knew God existed. Ham, Shem, and Japheth, their three wives, Noah and his wife, all knew God existed. They had just come off the flood. They had great empirical evidence. They could pass that on to their children and their grandchildren. What happened? Well, as a result of depravity and sin nature and rebellion against God, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be, be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things, so that you have a complete deterioration by the time you come to the Tower of Babel and this revolt against God. Now, God is concerned about communicating His grace in the gospel even to these rebellious people. So He has a new plan, and that is Abraham. And Abraham does not grow up in a home where he is influenced by the correct orthodox teaching. In fact, we're told in Joshua 24.2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the, of the river in old times, and they served other gods. He, they, he came out of a home where they worshipped the moon god and all the fertility gods that were popular in of the Chaldees. But eventually Abraham heard the gospel and trusted in God, and God calls him out, and in grace God chose Abraham and entered into a covenant with Abram, which is the basis for worldwide blessing. We read this in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Actually, that is an imperative. It's a command. You will be a blessing, Abraham. Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him, him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's approach is not just to Abram, not just to the Jews, but to the whole world through Abram. So God has a world vision from the beginning. His goal is to get the gospel throughout the world. He is going to do this specifically through the nation Israel, and they are set apart as a kingdom of priests. Let's look at the Abrahamic covenant, three parts, land, Seed and blessing. It's this last part of blessing that is the foundation for missions. Because God through Abraham is going to provide a blessing for all the nations. So we have to have a vision for that. Now, God does this by calling out the Jews. And if you look up on the overhead, I've got Exodus 19.6 there. It's the second verse on the screen. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This was God's missionary plan in the Old Testament with Israel. It wasn't the idea of go out and take the gospel throughout the world. It's that I am going to make a nation of you, Israel, 
and the whole world is going to come to you, and you will give them the gospel. And Israel was located right there on the eastern flank of the Mediterranean Sea, where you have trade routes coming down from Syria to Egypt, from the Hittites and Asia Minor, uh, down to uh, the area around the uh, Fertile Crescent. And all these trade routes intersected right in Israel. And it was there that God was setting up a tremendous counterculture nation called Israel, and they were to be a witness. In other words, as all these uh, men in the caravans are coming through, they're going to see a tremendous difference in Israel. They're going to see that Israel is a nation that is ruled by law. It is a nation where there is freedom. It's a nation where there is an understanding of God, where God is a personal God. He is not a local mountain God or a fertility God, but He is a holy and a righteous God. And as they see this difference, and as they, some were saved, they would take the gospel back to their homelands. So you might even go so far as to say that God was the originator of a uh, evangelistic ministry to truck drivers. I want to make sure you all are still awake this morning. So he's got the original uh, trucking evangelistic ministry going here, and these old camel drivers are then going to take the gospel back to their homeland. And that happened in many cases. But as Israel rebelled against God, the impact was lessened and, and eventually destroyed. But nevertheless, there are some some tremendous illustrations in the Old Testament of how the gospel was taken to Gentiles. One of the first is Caleb. Now, we all think of Caleb in the context of Caleb and Joshua standing against the rest, the other ten spies that went in to spy out the land. And we think of Caleb as being Jewish. But that's not what the Scripture says. Numbers 14.24, where Scripture talks about Caleb, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and he has followed me fully, that is, a different spirit meant that he had a different attitude towards doctrine, he was positive, I will bring into the land where he went and his descendants shall inherit it. So we are introduced to him, and in verse... Well, I've got the wrong verse there, but Caleb is identified for us and another verse of, of Scripture as being a Kenizzite. And a Kenizzite was a descendant of one of Abraham's uh, second wives. He had, was married to Sarah. After she died, he married two more wives. And from those two wives, several descendants came. But they are not Jews. They're different Arab tribes. They are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Caleb was a Kenizzite. And as a Gentile, though, he went, or his ancestors had gone with the Jews down into Egypt. And he, though he's not a Jew but a Gentile, he has trusted in God as his Savior. And so he has, and he is following the Lord. Then uh, another example of God's interest in the Gentiles in the Old Testament is Genesis 49.10. And in that prophecy about Judah... Uh, Isaac's, uh, uh, Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. And you miss it in, in New American Standard and in 
the King James, they translate it as a singular people. But the Hebrew is goyim, the peoples. And so the emphasis there is that God is concerned about the nations throughout the Old Testament. In fact, of the four women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1, three are Gentiles, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Other Gentiles in the Old Testament are mentioned that came to to uh, Israel and were saved through the impact of Israel. One was the Queen of Sheba who geographically relocates and comes up to see Solomon. We have the salvation of the widow of Zarephath by Elijah in 1 Kings 17.9. The salvation of Naaman the Syrian under Elisha's ministry in 2 Kings 5.1. Israel was to be a witness to the nations, and in many cases they were. The only example we have in the Old Testament of a missionary going out from Israel was the reluctant missionary Jonah. And Jonah was sent by God to Assyria to take the gospel there, and he said, Lord, and Jonah's a classic example of uh, racism and his own prejudices governing his his desire to, to see people saved. And he says, I hate the, the uh, Assyrians. They are enemies. I'm going the other way. So he hopped a boat to Spain and met, met a, a great fish, great sea creature, not a whale, that took him back to the beach, threw him up on the beach, and Jonah decided he better do what God said to do. So he's the reluctant missionary. He hit he hit Nineveh, and he proclaimed that God would judge them, but he was soft on the grace solution. Nevertheless, the people responded, and that uh, caused uh, Jonah to have a little pity party outside the wall. But nevertheless, we see a classic example of a nation that responds positively to the gospel, a nation, a Gentile nation, and their history is extended another 200 years because of their response to the gospel taught by Jonah. One individual can make a tremendous difference. Isaiah also prophesies in several places about the uh, impact of the gospel on the nations. In Isaiah 49.6, Isaiah says, Indeed it says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles. So it is prophesied about Christ that he would be a light to the Gentiles as well, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And then in Isaiah 56, 7, Isaiah says, Even them I will bring, even them, that is, the nations, the Gentiles, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So the Old Testament clearly prophesies a, an international impact of the gospel, that God has a desire to see Gentiles saved. The same verse I just quoted is picked up and quoted by Christ in Mark 11:17. There he is teaching in the synagogue, and he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And so with Christ we continue to see this impact 
and this interest of the gospel for Gentiles. And we'll come back next time and go through the Great Commission passages in the Gospels and then begin to trace the expansion of missions through the book of Acts with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the challenge of it. We realize that you have a desire to see all men saved and that that is not done apart from the operation of the local church and sending forth and supporting uh, missionaries. Father, we pray that you would continue to challenge this church and to use us in this realm of, of supporting missionaries. We pray for those we do support, for, for the Mueller's in Cameroon right now, for the LaRosas in the Philippines, for uh, Friends of Israel as they reach out to Jews both here and abroad, for Jim Myers and his ministry, and especially for the need they have there to find new classroom space as the place they're using is being sold and they need to uh, find a new place to house their operation. We pray that you would provide for that. Father, we also um, pray for Chafer Seminary. Pray for uh, Dr. Meisinger as he leads the seminary. We pray for the faculty members there, and we pray that you would continue to use that ministry to train and and challenge young people, young men and women with the desire who have the desire to serve you with the importance of accurately teaching your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. You don't need to Make a bargain with God. You don't need to reform your life, clean it up, or impress God with anything. The only thing that impresses God is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The way to receive that is to accept it as a gift by putting your trust, your faith alone, in Christ alone. When you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, at that instant God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Christ. He gives it to you as a free gift. And he declares you to be righteous and just because of that righteousness. So therefore, salvation is not based on anything you do. It's based exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we are studying this morning, the things we are learning about missions, that we may continue to look at the world as a place that needs the gospel, that that is the only hope for lost men and women. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.